This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Hello, I'm Stephen, host of the Black Doctors Podcast, here to talk about Clove. Clove is a sneaker specifically designed to meet the needs of healthcare professionals. I have a pair and I love how comfortable these shoes are, especially since I'm on my feet all day as an anesthesiologist. These shoes are perfect for the operating room because they are extra grippy and super easy to wipe clean at the end of the day. Purchase any pair of clove shoes and compression socks at checkout. Use the code BDPXCLOVE to get your socks for free. A $22 discount just by listening to the show. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Steven, your host. This week, I'm so excited to be sitting down with Jeremy J.P. Scott. We're going to claim it, Dr. Scott. Uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute privilege and, and honor to, to sit with you. Well, the, the privilege is definitely mine. I've definitely received joy from watching your Instagram and social media accounts and the positivity that you bring. For those of you that don't know, um, JP, he is currently a medical student. He's in his third year and he is also an international, uh, will be an international medical graduate having attended Ross University in the Caribbean. Prior to that, he attended Boston College and completed a master's degree in neuroscience. Yeah, from the, the University of Hartford. So I, I lived in New England for about almost a good close to 10 years um, because I worked after I got my master's. I stayed on at the University of Hartford and became their biology department lab supervisor. So I ran all of their undergraduate biology labs from general biology, microbiology to anatomy. So I did that. And then I also became an adjunct professor there as well in anatomy and physiology. So I did a lot of work there um, at that institution for a couple of years before leaving and then working on cancer research actually in Philadelphia at the Wistar Institute, where I did P53 research Mm -hmm. for a particular polymorphism um, uh, that is associated with African-Americans and how we receive cancer treatment. So that was what I specifically worked on in, in my lab before attending medical yeah, school. So no, no big deal. Very much you a just, circuitous uh, route. You cure cancer, that's all. <laughs> I mean, there we go. I wish. There you are. <laughs> yeah, the, the P53, that brings back some memories from uh, medical school. So you, so you are a non-traditional student um, to a circuitous route, a very uh, rewarding route, it seems. But Tell, go ahead and share more of your story. Like, like did, when did you decide that you wanted to become a physician? I mean, I've always wanted to to be a physician. I am lucky enough to have a mother that is a physician. She's an internal medicine physician, still practicing, um, and she's also a retired colonel in the Army Reserve. So, if any of you do follow me on my Instagram. She's commonly known as the Doctor Colonel, <laughs> is how I refer to her lovingly. But that was 
my my first exposure to medicine was having her as a parent and like I tell people, I lived in a hospital. I lived and was always with her in the hospital. Or unfortunately, my father was always somewhat ill. We 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 kind of talk about with his illness illnesses that it's between prostate cancer, stroke, mm-hmm. congestive heart failure, a heart attack. I've really learned what it's like to be on both sides, either the family member or on the clinician side growing up. So really, I tell people I, I grew up in medicine. And so I've always wanted to, to be a physician. And I always really found education as the best way to combat the fear that comes from unknowing. You know, I tell people, my father had a stroke, for example, when I was a sophomore in high school. And so I very much vividly remember the experience. But one of the things that I always admired so much about my mother is that having a physician as a parent, there was that level of calmness in something that is extremely scary. When you are witnessing your parent, you know, with complete aphasia and, you know, not able to speak and paralysis, Mm. you don't know what to do. But having a mother that was in medicine is is a physician that knew, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This, this, and this. There's that calm that is brought to a very scary situation. And I've always wanted to be able to be that calm for others and have that representation that I think is very much needed in medicine, even still with it being 2022. Yeah. Did that experience kind of lead you to pursue that master's degree in neuroscience? Absolutely. I think that was the one of the, the major pioneers for me to continue down that route and to learn as much as I could. Because again, if you look at my father now, you would never know that he had a stroke. It's amazing to look at his scans and look where he is. There is no paralysis, no aphasia, no anything, no signs, but he had a massive stroke. And I think just trying to understand the incredibleness of the human body has always fascinated me. And so when you get to also work with a parent that has all these different conditions, you get to kind of look at it in in real time. So he's been a very good patient, patient zero (laughs) for a lot of learning. Uh, much to his dismay, but hey, you know, it's it's one of the things that comes with the territory that you really just learn to love and appreciate the power of the human body. And to me, there's nothing more exciting because it's always changing. It's universal. There's so much that we don't know, but there's so much that we can do. And so it has always been a love of mine, even though it's been a very hurdled route to get there or get here. Yeah, yeah, and and a little bit more to come, but I know you're you're right on the the brink. You see the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Yes. Thank thank you. But it's <laughs> uh, I don't know what that light looks like because as you all know, it is it is still a very crazy journey that is medicine. And so I've been thankful that I've had a mother that's been through it can guide me a little bit, but I think even still medicine is so different um, than when she started and when she did it and to where we all are, it's, it's very much changing. So it's been quite a journey, but I can see a little bit of end point and I can see the <laughs> MD and, and finally behind my name, which is, is a feeling that I never honestly thought I would have. Yeah. So JP, after the master's degree and after the research, you applied to medical school, you chose to go to Ross University. A lot of people, you know, there's mixed feelings, opinions, uh, conjecture about uh, international medical graduates, Caribbean medical schools. How did you navigate that and ultimately decide to attend there? I think making the decision was not easy. And I think for me, it came out of a bit of 
desperation, I will say this, because I think one of the things that you learn when you're younger is time, time is again, it's not promised to anybody, but don't rush things and, and try and use your time wisely. I think when you are combated with, I think the unforgiving nature of what medicine is, whether it's making mistakes as an undergrad, getting C's or withdrawals or really struggling as much as people like to say that it's like, okay, we give chances and we want, we understand that. I think you come to find out that that is not necessarily always the case. And I think when you get to a certain point, you're like, okay, I just need to do this. And I need to do this where somebody's going to give me an opportunity. And lucky that I, I have a parent in medicine that there were other people that I could speak to that had gone the Caribbean route that said, look, you can have a career. You can make this possible. It can be a reality. It will be a little bit more difficult. But again, what has been ever easy, I think in my life, I, there, there's not been too many things that have been that easy. So it's like, okay, you know, this will be no different. And so it definitely did not come as an easy decision. Uh, I was waitlisted at a few U.S. schools, but I did look down the route of saying, okay, you're already outside closer to 30 years old. You really want this dream to happen. If this is what can happen, let's, let's just do it and go for it. So that was what the decision was. Um, uh, it, it's been quite a learning experience. It sounds like so. <laughs> so tell me, because Ross, we talked earlier, it was initially located on the island of Dominica and had to relocate to Barbados. So what was it like like transitioning and actually moving to an island to go to medical school. Horrible. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I am not the person that loves the beach, mm. loves the sand. I'm, I'm one of those people that says, look, uh, I was born with a tan. It, it came free, uh, with my birth. So I did not need to go out there and, and be on a Caribbean Island. It was not something for me. I knew I was coming there for a job. And I think there's a big misconception about what Caribbean med schools are. I think people think sun and surf, there's no Wi-Fi on the beach. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. sand does not mix with a step book. <laughs> so you are never out there and doing that as much as what people would love to believe we are doing. And I think you do have to remember that you are a part of a very big machine. So where there is a lot of care, I think, from U.S. students that they get a little bit more mentorship and handholding, we really don't get that from an IMG experience. You are very independent in your learning, your trying to find these opportunities and resources. I will say that that does provide a camaraderie between the students because we are not about this whole let's compete against each other because I think the one thing that medicine is very good at doing is creating scarcity yeah. and trying to pit people against each other. And so we really don't fall too far under that, you know, what we call it, the gunners, or you're really focusing so much on trying to compete against each other because you're too busy trying to learn the information, learn it at a faster pace, using more resources and different tools from the outside because you start out with a class of maybe like 400 people. You can start wow. out with 400, you know, 300 something kids in one class. Now that is not what eventually makes it to where I am and that graduates. That is more of like the 100s, 120s that actually make it through. But you have to have a great deal of diligence and a lot of grit to, to get through what is the Caribbean medical school experience. So 
I think people can underestimate because yes, we were the ones that had a lot of challenges to get into medical school, but I always tell people, please do not underestimate me (laughs) at this point in my career, because I, I certainly know how to really work and be diligent. And when you get on the other side of step one and you get into your clinicals, we are very hardworking, diligent medical students because we've really had to, to quite literally fight to get to where we are. And I think it makes us stronger students. Yeah, and transitioning from that second year of medical school um, to third year, you were mentioning how there's different clinical sites. Can you talk about kind of some of the broad options and and where you ended up? So for my school, and each Caribbean school is a little bit different, but the way that we do it at Ross is you are allowed to choose a track that you would like to kind of stay on for your third year. So it can be in Florida, Maryland, DC, uh, Michigan, California, New York, and there may be one or two other ones there, but you, you choose your track of where you would like. And so I'm from Maryland, the Maryland, Baltimore uh, area. That's where I grew up. And so that's what I chose for my track placements. So I am what is known in the beltway track. So anywhere between, you know, the beltway, if you're used to Maryland, DC, 695, 785 area. That's what I'm, a, I'm, I'm able to do. And we stay there for our third years. You, you stay along that track in your third year. And then when it comes to fourth year, you do it around the United States. You do your auditions just like anybody else. I will say you have a benefit because we do have those affiliate hospitals in the different states that it's a little bit easier sometimes for us to navigate and work with when it comes to our fourth year electives, because unfortunately we aren't a part of the the VSAS program where U.S. medical graduates, um, they're a part of that program where it's an easier paperwork and and stuff like that to, to work at these other hospitals throughout the United States. We can still do it. We just have to really kind of ask for permission. And some schools are open to it. Some are not for whatever their reason are. Again, like I said before, there's a great deal of scarcity and stratification that medicine likes to make that it's probably not as difficult to to work with IMGs as what other institutions would like. But I think they just don't want to do it because of, uh, you know, their own type of reasoning. But I'll let you all judge that for yourselves. <laughs> yeah. Maybe your institutions don't or do, but, um, but so that's, that's really kind of how it works. And so I'm lucky that I get to come back to Maryland and be here in Maryland and really serve my community that I grew up in, which has been a very rewarding experience. It's, it's been great. Yeah, absolutely. The Beltway is definitely a special place. If you've, anyone's ever been there, can attest yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, so JP, as you've navigated... Uh, graduate school, medical school, these rotations, you've navigated as a non-traditional student, as an international medical graduate, as a black male, as well as a gay male. How have you been able to navigate these processes with, you know, all the, the baggage and complications and complex relationships and different opinions that you may interact with along the way? I think... Being older and being 34 years old, I think I've learned to really learn about myself and own who I am as a person. Mm. And I think there is an importance in owning yourself when you're walking in these medical spaces. And I don't do it necessarily all the time for me, but I always think about my patient first, that 
I used to be very afraid to wear, let's say, a rainbow pin or even if somebody said, oh, why why are you single or who are you dating? And I used to always say partner. I used to be very ambiguous about it. I used to worry more about, well, what's that going to be reflected on me? How are they going to think? Are they going to not like me? Are they going to say that this is horrible, X, Y, and Z? And then I always think back to the patient because I remember one day that I wore my, my pride pin and there was a patient in I think every one of us knows that something there, there's a connection or there's a click or something that you can read in a patient that you're like, you're not telling me something. There's a reason. And let me just ask. And I had a a queer patient and it was something in me that after I was with my preceptor and they went through the whole list of, okay, so you have sex with men or you have sex with women. It was a very straight statement that I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is not a a clearness Mm -hmm. here. And I let them leave. And then I went back and I said, let's talk a little bit more because I don't think you're being honest with me. And they, and I self-identified as a queer individual, as a gay individual. And the amount of honesty that I got, I said, okay, this from now on, I will never code switch for my queerness or I will never code switch for my blackness or really when it comes to patient care. I said, because we needed to know this information. They felt comfortable. They felt open because I allowed that to be present in the room as well. And I think it's a very scary thing navigating it. And, And I do this all the time on my social media where I wonder whether I should say him, should I say black or be very, you know, not pick the synonym that is appropriate, or I I would shouldn't say appropriate is more acceptable, but saying it directly for what it is. I've, I've really navigated and felt comfortable at this age to say, if you have a problem with that, that speaks more about you. I am willing to take on the repercussions of what that might be. You may not want me at your hospital. You may, may not want me to do X, Y, and Z. I'm okay with that because the overall risk is, I think, so much greater and the harm is much greater. And that is to our black and queer, you know, patients that really need to feel that they are accepted in a profession that they have typically and consistently been shown that they do not matter um, or that they are less than and they will be treated such. So it's been a journey, but I think one that I'm quite happy with at this moment that I, I stand proudly in, in all of of those aspects of my character. Yeah, that's that's huge and, and speaks for the significance that diversity in healthcare plays, not just black, white, Asian, Hispanic, but uh, in, in gender and um, the fact that you are unapologetic and have grown to, to this level. Because I mean, when I first started watching, I was like, who's this dude dancing on Instagram? <laughs> just like free, just happy <laughs> as a clam dancing. <laughs> <laughs> in my bathroom, like a, like a, like a damn fool before I try and, and work out and go to the hospital. I, I don't do it as much anymore. Y'all I will try and bring it back. But these, these six thirty six 6 AM signouts with an hour and something drive, you know, priorities. Yeah, I, I, I will say I would scroll down. And I'm like, Nope, there, there's JP again. And, and the happiness that you exuded was, was infectious. And I was yeah. like, Oh, all right. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's, he's happy. He's having a good day as a medical student. So why am I right. complaining? <laughs> I know. Um, But yeah, it is. And it's trying to bring that. I think that's the thing that I I know, especially when it comes to black topics or or queer issues. I said there is so much joy 
I mean, people always associate all these different traumas and things. And don't get me wrong, they very much exist mm-hmm. uh, in our communities of as, as marginalized individuals. They 100% exist. But I think it's so important to also be able to see the joy, to see the passion, and just that we can be out here and we can find those moments um, within our busy days, within the difficulties that we, we exist and, and navigate, that there is joy and that we can really do that. And that's something that I want other queer and black individuals to see, because otherwise, what do they see of a medical profession? What do they know of physicians if they only see us being most likely the studiers and, you know, tired and exhausted individuals that we are? We are human beings first. And as human beings, we are fathers, spouses. We are, you know, musicians, like in your case, <laughs> dancers and in my case, and we bring that to our medicine, right? Yeah. We bring that to us, our, our jobs and our profession every day. And believe it or not, it's those little things that makes, I think sometimes everything in a medical experience for our patient, you know, oh yeah, I play the piano. I do this. I'm interested in that. Bam, right there. You've made that connection with that person. Oh, I dance salsa and bachata in my, you know, <laughs> free time and do all this. And Right there. It's the connection that they needed and that they've never felt in a very scary or sterile situation. Right. And I think that that's great for individuals to see. And I think it's important for them to see, especially this next generation of, you know, black individuals, queer individuals, because medicine needs us. Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. Absolutely. It's funny you bring that up, uh, identifying because so you wouldn't probably can't tell by looking at me. I worked construction for like four years of my life from like high school and, and through college. And the, the number of times that I've had like the big burly um, Confederate flag waving construction worker with the, the dirty rough hands and mm. I can share like, oh, well, I work construction da, da, da. and like the, the way that their tone changes, you realize that these, these folks probably think, you know, physicians are rich, they're uppity, they don't work, they, you know, they have their own preconceived ideas and I'm able Notions. to come in with my contribution to diversity and and relate and, and change that encounter. And it makes such a difference. And I think that's the thing that medicine is a human, you know, profession. And that's one of the things that we have to do is to really broaden and and create that tether of the humanness that can easily get lost in pathology. Right. We have we look at people for their disease. We look at people for, okay the number of cases and X, Mm -hmm. Y and Z. But it's the humanness that we have to really make sure that we're maintaining a hold of so that we don't lose that compassion, that empathy, that we don't miss something because we're 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 focused on something else. That is what makes healthcare such an, an important and beautiful profession, but also what we have to really kind of make sure that we're keeping at the forefront of what we're doing. Yeah, it's funny. And you mentioned that that human aspect and it goes not only for our, our patients, but also for ourselves as physicians, medical students, healthcare providers. You've written a couple of pieces, uh, extremely introspective, and they're located on the Melanin Docs blog, melanindocs.com, as well as featured on the Surviving Medicine, very appropriately named uh, blog. Mm. And you wrote specifically, I think it was back in 2019, about uh, mental health and choosing to prioritize yourself. And I thought that the analogy you used in the piece was so apropos, speaking specifically of, you know, on airplanes when 
the oxygen mask drop from the ceiling. You're supposed to help yourself first. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what that, how you came up with this concept and, uh, you know, what does choosing and prioritizing yourself mean? So that's exactly, honestly, how my, my Instagram came to be. It was actually from my first semester of medical school. I did not pass my first semester of medical school. And the first thing I did when I came back to campus was I went to our health services and I said, I need to work on my internal dialogue, this narrative, this experience on the island, everything. I need to work on my mental health in order to get over these hurdles that I'm having. And my therapist, shout out to Shannon, (laughs) that she said, you have a story and you're going through something that, trust me, so many people could learn a lot from. Talk about it. Mm. And so that's where my Instagram and all of this came from. It was birthed from from her saying, share your experience, take ownership of your experience and your struggles and just put it out there. And it started out as little challenges because she could see it and she'd be like, okay, you need to write about this, talk about this because you love writing, you love speaking. And then it just evolved into what it is today. So I think with mental health, It is one of those things, and I wrote also in that piece about it being like Voldemort, you know, from Harry Potter. It's the word that you don't say. Why? Because you're so worried about what people are going to think about when you mention that. Are you weak? Are you having issues? And I tell people, therapy for me has been one of those godsends. I said, because it teaches me the tools and gives me the toolbox that I need so that I don't have these breakdowns or I don't have, you know, issues down the road because I'm too busy focused on one thing and not focused on the other. And I think especially in the black community, it's still a topic that we do not talk a lot about. And I think even more apropos with this conversation is the unfortunate, you know, suicide of um, Miss USA yeah. 2019, uh, Chelsea Christ, that just happened. And it goes to show you that people are really suffering in silence. Yeah. And it does not need to be that way. And there is so much power in community and so much power in sharing. And again, the things about mental health is just putting a name to it, just saying that you're having difficulty, I think can be so impactful because not a single person, I think, have we ever felt like we've been alone, that we've wanted to ask for help but didn't know how to or you know, looked for support but it just wasn't there. And I think these discussions, especially in medicine, especially for our healthcare providers – I mean, we're going to see it a lot more and we've been seeing it more with COVID-19 and everything that's happened since the pandemic that people are just struggling. And I think it's so important for us to really just start that conversation that it's okay, and let's try and work on actionable steps to making things better. And so I've always been such a, a proponent about speaking about my own struggles and then also just saying, okay, well, what do I do? Whether it's dancing, whether it's writing, that I think is very cathartic for me. Like, I think people will look at my Instagram and it's not necessarily, I think, the most, you know, normal Instagram that you would see from people. It's like, it's not sunny with a case of rainbows. It's like these long pieces <laughs> right, yeah. that are very, like, long and written. But I love it because it is cathartic for me to write and to talk about my experiences, to also share in things like this that are community building that I'm like, I am not, I may be the only black person that walks the halls of my hospital, 
you know, oftentimes that's what it is. But I am a part of such a larger community of black men that are here to help, that are also maybe just one message and DM away from being able to guide me or mentor me. And I think for me, that's what I've kind of done, where it's prioritizing in terms of building that network, but then also being like, okay, let's go out and run. Let's go out and dance. Let's go out and do different things that bring joy to you and, and that you're able to do. And I think that that helps me in terms of prioritizing my mental health and in, in the melee of all medical school things that happen. Yeah. And it's incredible that that project that you started with your, uh, social, your mental health worker has now blossomed and ballooned into the jpscott.med Instagram Med. account, in yeah. case you guys aren't following jpscott.med on Instagram. 15,000 followers, incredible, <laughs> incredible social impact, um, brightening people's days with the content um, that, that, that you're putting up. And it just goes to show that, you know, people are here and they, they're identifying and they, and they want to see people like themselves that they can relate to. And and I think like what we've talked about before, and, and we've messaged back and forth, obviously, a long time um, before this, but we talk about purpose, passion, and joy, mm-hmm. like those being the three things that drive my Instagram, the things that I do. Those are my three words that I really focus a lot on. And it's what is your purpose? It's representation of black and queer individuals in medicine. How is that manifested through your passion of writing, storytelling, telling, activism? I think platforms are wonderful. And again, everybody does them for their own reasons. So I'm not throwing shade at anybody for whatever your purpose may be. But I think for me, my purpose for my Instagram and the things that have come from it are to make the biggest amount of impact for the community or for the little black and queer person that I was growing up that I would have loved to see. You know, I would have loved to see that queer representation. I would have loved to see more people like me in medicine. I knew it was possible because my mother did it every single day. But that imagery, that power of imagery and presence is so, so, I think, underscored. And I think, again, medicine needs it to be underscored, the power of that presence, because if that was really put to the height of what we know it to be, then there would be a change in medicine that I think a lot of people that are in charge right now would not want to see happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are my guiding principles. It's not so much about me and a, a lot of stuff that I do on social media. I think a lot of it, I do a behind the scenes of things that I'm like, I'd like to donate here. Let's create this here. I, it's not about necessarily taking the, the the center stage of a lot of these things. It's hopefully trying to be that back and provide that framework that organizations or we can bring attention to and awareness to different issues. That is what I love to do. And, I, and I've just been blessed that it, it's come with, you know, partnerships with other companies, well-known companies. I don't know if we're allowed to say what they yeah, are here or, or mean, not. They, they like, you know, me, like figs, yeah, go, fi- go figs or Metalita, <laughs> you know, that, 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 and, and making people really kind of, again, put your money where your mouth is. You know, I'm not here to sell. Like, that's the one thing I always tell people. I'm not here to sell anybody else's products and whatever else it is. I'm here to tell my story. I will tell my story in your products. But I will never, ever sit there and be used to sell somebody else's dream. 
That's that's not what this is. And so sometimes people ask, like, how do you work for both companies? How do you work for different things? I said, because I am not going to be exclusive. If, if you want to work with me, you will work with under the guise of I do it the way that I want. You're not going to tell me when to post or how to post or what to post or when to do it, who I can and cannot work with. I am my own person. And I'm going to tell my story and I'm going to do it with authenticity, with honor and with respect because that's how I've been raised and that's how I conduct myself. And if you want to be associated with that, then absolutely. If you don't, you are free to work with anybody else that you would like. But those are my rules because there is so much importance in my presence, in my identity, that I will not let anybody monetize or monopolize it. I, I just won't. I mean, you can give me money. Take the money. So let me take that back. The monetize, if you want to pay for it with hefty fees, that's fine. Like that, that is okay. Um, but I, again, that's my rule. And everybody is a little bit different, but I think it has been very much widely respected that this is what he stands for. And, you know, I grew up having a mother, again, in the military, a little five foot one dynamo that is like, you do this with purpose. Hmm. If you're going to do it, you do it with purpose. You do it with these things that, again, you have a mission and and do not forget it and do not get lost in it. And then the second that you do get lost, that's when it needs to stop. So, aka, she can she doesn't have an Instagram, but my mother is very much aware <laughs> of what happens on my Instagram, family networks, you know, all these things. So, if it was not Dr. Colonel approved. <laughs> It definitely wouldn't go out there, man. But yeah, that's that's what is is a driver. That that was a word, you know. You, you said a lot, and uh, um, you know, we have message about <laughs> social media, and I've learned a lot from you and what you just said there. I think a lot of people can can help, you know, at least decide what their their message is and what their mission is and what their purpose is. I, I do wonder. So, JP, between you and the Doctor Colonel, do you guys ever like, sit down and talk about? Um, experiences, you know, what she's experienced as a black woman in medicine in the army and what you're experiencing and, and how things have changed for the better, I hope. You know what? The the funny thing is, it's not almost how things have changed, it's how, how things are so similar. Mm. I think that's the scary part of it. One of the blessings I will always say, I mean, COVID has been such a hard thing for a, for the entire world, especially the, the black community. But the one thing it did allow was for me to be home for a, an extended period of time until things were figured out and stuff like that. And so my mother, you know, got to see what it's me actually studying and doing the work and now being in my clinicals and, and traveling during the day and doing all of that. She gets to see it firsthand. And it's been such a beautiful connection that we've been able to, to foster even more than what we've always had. Because I come home and I tell her about my patient experiences. I tell her about experiences that I've had and people have said things to me in the hospital about, well, you know, uh, I, what was your name again? Uh, it doesn't really matter. I'll be able to mm. figure it out. There's only a few of you. Literally. And she's like, honey, if that hasn't happened to me a million times, or I'll never forget one of the patients said to me, you know, you speak very well. <laughs> you know, you speak well, which every, I think, black person knows mm. what that means. Mm-hmm. And I have a very vivid memory of my mother telling me about a woman that said the same thing to her saying, well, you speak the King James's English very well. And 
there have been those moments, and especially during the George Floyd murder and the Ahmaud Arbery and everything that happened through for Black Lives Matter movement really at the height of 2020, that it was so much conversation and dialogue about the importance of what we do in healthcare and why in those moments when I'm struggling through step one and struggling through the hurdles that I've had in my beginning parts of my medical school that she's like, this is why we do this. And I always tell people, you always look for when people speak in we's, we, this is why we're doing this, why we work so hard, why we have to make it through because your presence, and I keep going back to this, this, this statement, your presence is so powerful. Yeah. Your presence is a form of activism. And more than anything, it's great to also see where when I tell her different things that I do in the hospital, she's like, honey, that's not how I do it. This is how I would do it. Or, you know, when I show her my notes and now we definitely do have those, those arguments. Well, that's not how I want my note done. I'm not your, your med student. Right, so right. it does not matter, Dr. <laughs> Colonel, you know, uh, which I still get told all the time, like you write very medicine like, and I'm like, well, this is the background that, that I have. And so it's been great being able to share those moments and just those, those joys and when you have those patients that just come in and they really have been so just enjoy, like they've just been felt like they were seen and heard for the first time because of nothing more than having a black or a queer med student at that step into the room and talk to them. I think being able to share those joys and those memories of those patients, it's been a really rewarding experience having, you know, being under the same roof for this long period of time, which will hopefully end after, <laughs> you know, next year. Uh, as much as I love saving the coin, oh, man. it's been a great experience, but it's time to go. Uh, but yeah, it's been a wonderful privilege, but it's, like I said, it's scary because a lot of the same things that I've said in 2022, she recalls and remembers back when she did her medical school as well. And I think that is, again, telling for how far medicine has actually evolved, as not as much as what people would love for us to believe it has. Yeah. Well, JP, as we, as we close, I'm going to put you on the spot, um, not to make you the, the spokesman for the LGBTQ community. But as a queer medical student, what would you say to those medical students, your fellow medical students, uh, residents, attendings that identify as straight? What would you say to them in regards to supporting medical students um, that identify as LGBTQIA? I think the first thing that I would tell them is to remember that there is a difference between tolerance and acceptance. Hmm. You tolerating me as a queer individual is a lot different from you accepting me as a queer medical person. So that means you have to also check your level of comfort and you have to also be able to identify if something's making you feel uncomfortable or any type of way check yourself first before you try and check me. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with identifying where you are limited in your understanding or your scope. I think that is one of the first things that I think people have a struggle with. They don't want to say something wrong, so they don't say anything at yeah. all. That's only exacerbating silence allows for the creation of a, of a false narrative, but it only exacerbates ignorance further. So it's not about getting 
something wrong. For example, saying somebody's pronouns incorrectly. It's saying it incorrectly. And then if somebody says, well, these are what my pronouns are, work the next time to just try. It's not about being right. It's about getting it right. And so those are things that even for me, sometimes it doesn't make sense or it doesn't necessarily compute in my head because I'm, I like to consider myself, I'm a little bit of an older gay. So <laughs> even still the, the pronouns are a bit new, things like that. Like the, this next generation has an ownership of their sexuality and their queerness that someone like me, I think it took many years to, to finally feel comfortable doing. So there's learning all across the board. So I think also pay attention to everything around you. When you say that you are accepting of a queer individual, what are you saying behind closed doors? Mm. Are you mm -hmm. wearing a pin? Are you talking to patients and saying, are you interested in men, women, or both? Are you going back down these rabbit holes of thinking only in a heteronormative fashion? When you start remembering and really try to make those steps of changing the way in which quote unquote, it's always been done, that does wonders for me and other queer individuals to say, okay, this is a place that is affirming, is accepting, and is trying to make transformational change, not transactional change. Because again, me just being here as a black and queer individual, I check boxes. That's a transaction. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything for change. It doesn't mean anything for growth or advancement. Saying, okay, we recognize you as a black and queer individual. What talks can we do? Uh, would you mind you know, educating us a little bit more about pronouns? We've been working towards this initiative or that. How can we make our you know, hospital or our system a little bit more inclusive in terms of talking about gender-affirming surgery or what is it like to approach a queer patient, not from a standpoint of simply you know, they're trying to kill themselves and depressed and whatever else, but Again, from a standpoint, like we talked about, of joy, of learning information about their health. Because, again, think about it from the standpoint of a lot of people. It's tough enough to come out to friends and family that you've known your entire life. Imagine what it's like to have to do it in a sterile environment to somebody that's again, doesn't look like you doesn't potentially identify as you, and then walks in and assumes, oh, well, you have sex with women, right? Okay, so this is what it is. Okay, so now I have to work even harder yeah to try and muster the courage to try and talk to that. And same with your colleagues. How many colleagues do you talk about your dating, your wife, your girlfriend, whatever else? How open are you to hearing that from your queer individuals and, and providers and colleagues? Do they do the same? If not, why? So I think a lot of that, the thing that I would say to doctors and me medical students and all of these things, first check yourself, do some internal work about how you speak how you do. And then also it's okay to, like I said, get it wrong. It's okay. Uh, I get it wrong all the time too. own it, but just say that we're trying to learn and do better. But it goes back to, again, not trying to be right, but get it right. And so keep that in your mind, in the back of your head of what you're doing and understand it's new to everybody. It's, it's always new. You know, we don't say, for example, um, non-compliant. We say, I think it's been more, we don't say non-compliant. We do non-adherent, um, for example. Those terms, well, I don't really care. No, there's, there's importance in that difference. Yeah. And so if you can learn that difference, then you can also learn pronouns. You can learn not being able to speak in just a heteronormative type of, of framework or the binary framework. Why? Because it goes back to making somebody feel seen, heard, and know that they matter.
And you should be doing that across the board, not just for your patients, but for the student, for your colleague, for anybody else. So keep those three things in mind, you know, that people want to be seen, heard, and know they matter. Pull from your own experiences when that hasn't happened and how it makes you feel. If somebody wants you to call them they, them, or she, they, how hard is that? Yeah. When it comes to, again, going back to somebody's humanity. So that's kind of what I would say. I don't know if that was helpful oh, or not. <laughs> incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Little do you know, I'm like, I got to get JP yes. on here. Uh, whenever oh, no, it gets is, big this enough is, this to, uh, to be you know on his radar <laughs> as a mega influencer. Uh, <laughs> oh, please. If, no, thank you so much. It has been an honor. <laughs> absolutely an honor. If you're not already following him, check him out on Instagram, JP Scott dot med j-p-s-c-o-t-t dot m-e-d on instagram where else um do you have a present that's that's it i can only (laughs) handle one thing at a time i am not on twitter on these other things tiktok is a no-no for me i can only handle one so that is where you will will find me um all the time yeah fantastic thanks for joining us because representation matters it does so thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful to sit here against the giants and amongst the the giants in our profession shout out to you know dr atola brown if he's listening or dr love and ani you know you know i'm gonna message you all hopefully maybe we can get some guidance but it's been a, a privilege to be among so many awesome and incredible black individuals on this podcast it is honestly it is been uh, an honor so thank you the black doctors podcast is a non-profit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen if you enjoy listening tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media we are a small team and can use all the help we can get you can reach us at the black doctors podcast on instagram or at stephen bradley md on twitter or instagram tune in next week for another episode of the black doctors podcast because representation matters.